those who haven't been with us for the last three days, um, it's been already pretty amazing. Uh, the Creative Hub is supporting 62 artists across three weeks to be in residence at the Tidiaco Arts Centre. Um, the artists can come in and out as they wish, they can work in studios, but also as part of that, um, we had two grounding days together to meet each other, find what's potentially interesting and what we want to investigate. Um, and we're also having a series of public programs, uh, which is small group discussions, panel discussions and some workshops as well. Of course, I do want to say, um, acknowledge the First Nations people. Um, So to help us do that today, we have three amazing individuals. 
So we have Sheila Mereska. Magatsa. Thank you. And now Sheila is Executive Director of the Chamber of Culture and the Arts here in WA. And as many of you will probably know, she's had an extensive career as an artistic director and a producer. So she is just incredibly wise and has seen a lot of different shows, a lot of different artists, a lot of different structures and organisations, a lot of different viewpoints. So it's wonderful to have her here. We then have Ian Wilkes. And he is, um, we may have seen him in Yuri Yarkin's work and Oka's work and CO3's work. He is an artist, educator um, and performer and he's also a founding facilitator <coughs> with Culture 2.0. Is this right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. And, and so Ian's going to be able to talk today from a really personal point of view about being an artist but also working with a lot of different people um, to make work that is meaningful and important. And on the end here, we have Lily Lou. And Lily is currently Education and Visitor Experience Officer at the Art Gallery of WA. Mm -hmm. And she's also Creative Consultant at the Sydney Opera House. Oh, I'm actually the Head of Learning and Creativity Research. People should really update their websites, <laughs> I think. I think that would be good for me. Okay, so when I do hand the mic over to our guests, they may reintroduce themselves if they choose. How does that sound? Okay, that sounds great. All right, so um, here we are. Um, we're going to have a conversation, and it, I, I guess that I was invited to facilitate the panel because it, started, it starts out as a mental health conversation. So as you will be aware, for about... I'd say about four years now, mental health has been quite a focus in the arts. And it started with a paper and some research that was released through Finjus University a number of years ago. And the data that was in that report was, um, look, it was a really challenging read, I think, for a lot of people. And I think that a lot of people knew that was there and that that, that was going on for people in the sector. But nonetheless, it's a whole other thing to actually have someone else write about it and show you the data. And um, so we've had these, these years since then, and I have to say, as a sector, I'm super, super impressed because there were a number of artists who were generous enough to get up and share their own personal stories as a way to, and, and, and I have to say that most people in most sectors don't do that, and I was completely taken aback by people just being able to stand up and go, well, this is what's happening for me. And so that enabled us to personalise the stories and also to locate ourselves in the stories as well, which is really and we also have a lot of amazing organisations and they facilitated a whole lot of support for artists. A lot of organisations just trying to work it out as they went along actually, I have to say, because there weren't many guidelines on it. And we also had a whole lot of different programs for artists to look after their mental health. Does that sound like what you understand in a nutshell as well? Would that be fair enough? Yeah. So, so if I now talk about mental health in the arts, you all can kind of nod a bit and go, yeah, I've seen that topic. I know what that's about. Yeah. All right, great. So there's now a conversation that's been happening. I've been hearing it, Performing Lives has been hearing it, and this is where we're curious. Where you have um, artists who are deeply connected to what they do and who are understanding a level of self-care and looking after themselves, and then they're meeting structures or organisations or projects that where it's, they're feeling the pressure. They're feeling like they can't 
be the one who's solely responsible for their self-care because we're relational creatures and we function in context and so we can't separate ourselves from those type of environments. If I'm pretty comfortable in my life and don't have very much stress, I don't have to worry about my self-care. <laughs> How much fun are those moments? But if I'm in a position in my life where I'm under stress, I ought to really look after that stuff because that's what I've got to call on. So it's, it's, it's a dance, it's a dyad. Anyone want to add to that? Anyone got any questions about that? Okay, so I'm going to draw an analogy to set this conversation up, okay? I'm going to assume, and I'll get your confirmation on this, that most of you care about the environment as a group. Have I got that about right? Yep. Okay, so, that as a group, you understand the concept of recycling, you care about the planet, you understand what we're talking about when we talk about climate action needing to happen, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, all right. So, you care about that. It's important to you. And I imagine that you all then engage in a whole series of actions in the world based on the fact that that's an important and meaningful thing to you. Who here tries to ride a bike or catch public transport? Mm -hmm. Who here does their recycling? Mm -hmm. Right. Who here puts solar panels on their house if they can? Mm -hmm. or, right, okay. And this takes human effort, right? And you're doing this because it's meaningful to you and you care about it. And what's meaningful to you is your connection to the planet, Maybe. It might be that you feel part of this ecosystem. There might even be a little bit of grief in there about um, how we got to this place. And, and all of this comes together in a way that you care and then you show actions in the world. We got that? Okay. So your arts practice, because in my experience, no one practices art unless they care about it, is something that you're also really connected to and it's also really meaningful for you. And so you spend an exorbitant amount of your human energy caring about it. Now, as a dance person, for me, I probably could buy an investment property, actually, with the amount that I've spent on my body. Getting it touched and rubbed, the ointments, you know, and, like, going to yoga, so many yoga, so many Pilates, like, all that investigation. But I do it because I care, because it makes me better in the studio, and it makes me better on stage. And I work with those relationships that, with people that, where I want to make the work. And I also invest in it philosophically. You know, there are members of my family who just look at me when I talk and go, oh, So can you see the parallels between these two places? Yeah. So we're talking about mental health, self-care, and the arts. We're, it's deeply aligned with what's meaningful to us and what we care about. And we don't just care for ourselves. Self-care is about our relationships with others, very, very, very much so. It is the number one thing you look for in a psychologist is how isolated is a person. Because the more isolated they are, the more vulnerable they are. So it's relational. It's also connected to a sense of spirituality. And you may have a codified religion, but you might also just engage in philosophical questions like, what's the meaning of life? And that's important too. That's all self-care. That happens in your artistic domain, right? All those things. Okay. So let's go back to the environment. 
So I'm doing my recycling because I've got colour-coded bins and I recycle everything and then I watch what leaves the house because I've got this screen that I can process everything I bring into my property on my property. So if I can't, I look out for it. And I'm unsuccessfully trying to separate the scrunchable plastic from a piece of paper on a window envelope. <coughs> and I have this rush of white fury. Because I have so many better things to do with my life. So many better things to do than to separate scrunchable plastic from paper. And the reason that I'm furious is because we have a government that is stubbornly ignoring all the scientific data on climate change. And we have inadequate recycling facilities. There are infrastructure that I believe I'm voting for as best I can, and I'm, I don't have it. I feel powerless. And so then I feel apathetic, and then I go, stop it, you know what? Plastic is convenience, my life is busy enough, I could do with a bit more convenience. And guess what, the garbage truck picks it up and just takes it away. Fine. I'm just not gonna do this anymore. Who has a parallel experience in their arts practice? Right, that's the rub we're interested in. Because we want to be able to change those structures so that you can continue to engage in a way that's value-driven, with heart, with soul, with health, and to not have those moments of like, I think, I think I have to go to, into politics. I've done that. I've met with people about that. But I don't want to be a politician. And I wonder, but sometimes I feel so angry, I think, I wonder if I can maintain this anger long enough to become Prime Minister. <laughs> I wonder if I can. <laughs> That's how I think about positions of power. I wonder if I can maintain my anger long enough to change the structures. So I'd like you not to be angry in your efforts to change. So this is where we want to start this conversation. Is what are our other options? What do we want to change? How can we think about this? Are you with us? Yeah. Or okay. I'm going to invite Ian Wilkes to um, reflect on this conversation. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just hold the mic just in case you can't hear me way up the back. Um, I don't know, listening to Shona speak reminded me of um, many things throughout my career. So I'll, I'll kind of just begin with a quick introduction about who I am who I am, what I've done, my career so far. Um, I started, like, straight out of high school, went to at theatre course, and that was all kind of fun at WAPA. Graduated and did a lot of work with Yuri Arkin. Um, and my first kind of works with Yuri Arkin were, were based around their educational kind of um, projects and their touring projects and their kids' shows and children's theatre. And so... I developed this really strong passion for children's theatre and wanting to kind of express my culture and theatre and jump around and have fun with the kids. Um, and so I thank Yuri Yarkin, you know, daily to kind of that, that, to give me that inspiration. But there were moments, even in, in children's theatre, where I just 
you know, really thought, fuck it, what am I doing? Because, you know, we were touring for five weeks and we've all had those kind of feelings where you just get really tired of that. I mean, um, one, one example I could give you was a marble bar on a 40 degree day doing three shows in a tin roof for the communities there. And the, the kids' shows that we had, we had these big warm costumes and rugs over us, so I'm sweating under this big whale costume in 40 degree heat at Marble Bar. We had to do three shows, you know? So I remember after that show and that specific experience, it was five weeks on tour, finishing Marble Bar and sweating and then packing up after the show, knowing that that show was super beneficial for that community and those kids there. But me personally, packing up the set after the show at the truck, I just had to walk away from the truck and I just remember going, what am I doing? And I yelled that out to the desert. And I looked to my left and the stage manager just standing there, <laughs> and nods and smiles. And you know, um, so it's those moments that kind of made me reflect on. And I've had plenty of them in, in, throughout my career. After, after doing a lot of children's theatre stuff, and that passion is still there, but I don't tour as much. I made the choice once I had my my first child that I'm going to slow down the touring, um, and that changed me. Becoming a father, I'm a father of two boys now, um, and having that small family now kind of really made me slow down my life and really reflect on can I be away from them and my partner for five weeks on end? Sometimes even more, no, and and that's the, the kind of the relationship I have with my partner now is like, we've got to talk about if I'm away for two, three weeks, then that's okay. But anything further on, it's a bit tricky. Um, so my family, super important and to prioritise for my own mental health when, when working. Um, you know, everything I do is for my, my family and those two boys and raising them, they are my priority. And so I'm teaching them language and culture and making sure they're happy in their journey and their path. I think all parents out there want a better life and a better way of life for their children than we had. I know that from experience from my father. And especially being a, a, a black fellow, you know, um, we see the struggles of our elders and our parents and they making a better path for us. So I feel like as a young and up-and-coming leader in my community, I need to do the same. And it doesn't just reflect onto my children, but all children. And so that's why that passion is still there for children's theatre, making sure these young fellows have a, have a way of coming up safely. Um, and so after a lot of my, my kind of career developments with that, I started to kind of dance a bit with Oka and do some more performing with dance and contemporary dance and started to do some main stage shows with Yuri Yarkin and, and step aside from touring and the, the children's stuff. But I did a bit of directing and writing. That's about it. I didn't really step in as a performer and tour. So I was immersed in it, but in a different way, a safer way, where I can go home every night, you know. Um, and so the main stage shows started developing and it was a bit different because some of those shows, the context was quite, you know, it's not hand up front and high five kids shows, it's, it's really he heavy stuff. Heavy topics that um, us blackfellas are dealing with, you know, the social issues that we struggle with every day. We, we express in our theatre 
And so I began shows like that. And I had this understanding that, you know, I had some wise people around me giving me advice about what I choose to do and what work I choose to take on. And, you know, an amazing woman said to me, your career is defined by what you say no to, not by what you accept. So I found myself looking at the work that I was doing and making sure that I'm doing the right thing and not just taking on work because I need the money. <laughs> taking on work because I want to be a part of it because it creates further change. And so I look back on a lot of the shows that I've done so far and they've done that, but with a toll, you know, with a toll on myself, with a toll on my family. It, it's that touring thing again, but I'm at home, I'm going home every night, but there's still that that toll, that weight that is on my shoulders, those rocks, those heavy rocks that are placed on top of me every time I do a show. Because it's unavoidable. I'd, I'd love to do a show one day where it's just all fun and happy DJ, dance, 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 I'm all good, or some kind of abstract artwork, but I can't, not yet. You know, as a black fella, we've got a long way to go before I can create work like that. Mm -hmm. I need to make sure that my, the work that I do reflects as a responsibility to my community. And that's what I hold. And it gets heavy at times, but sometimes I can bear the weight and sometimes it's, the load is kind of shared amongst the cast, the crew, the collective of who I'm working with. Um, and so more recently, some of you know I did uh, Gala. And so Gala, I'll, I'll end with, which was really, really strong, really heavy, but um, me being a single performer in Gala was different to, say, the year before, which was Hecate. And Hecate, we had this beautiful family, beautiful way of looking after ourselves afterwards. We had Cumbran up outside there. We had that fire, we had that smoke, we had family around us. We were crying, we were hugging each other, we were looking after each other. Mm. And so that was amazing for me to work like that. And, and really quite kind of healing in a way. And so I wanted to take that and work, work that with Gala. The, the struggle for me with Gallup was I was only that one single performer. Yeah, I had Nan around me. I had, um, you know, stage managers and cast and crew and directors around me, but that, that responsibility of holding that story myself and not having others to rely on was huge. And life didn't stop. I was, I was dealing with a lot of other issues that Blackfellas deal with uh, within, within the festival time. Um, we, I had to evacuate the fires. We had that week in between where we had to kind of sit at home and isolate for a while. So all that was happening and, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with friends and family, you know, committing suicide and <coughs> heavy drugs and overdosing and none of that stuff stops. And so you deal with that life at those moments and you know you've got this big festival show and it, it becomes a lot. But we, we purposely implicated things that we could do that helped me with that. So I wanted to make my own camera, you know, my own fire, my own yarn, my own kind of way of hugging it out and speaking and crying. And we did that with Performing Lines Help. We did that with, with Poppy and we just spoke and yarned. And that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, post uh, festival, I've got a holiday in with my family. I, my family's from Queensland, <coughs> and it 
was huge for me to just get one week holiday in. And I needed it, and I could feel my body wanting that. So we went over to Queensland and had a week, come back refreshed, and that's where I'm at now. After that holiday, I've been working and working. And stepping up next to um, another heavy topic, which is York. So I'll be helping kind of direct York and jumping into that weight and seeing what that's about and how we can look after each other. And I'm tr still trying to make sure that we, in that room, at Black Swan now, have those ways to make sure everyone's okay and safe and look after each other. It's going to be different because it's Black Swan. It's not Yuri Yarkin. It's not my own show. It, it's, it's having that, that, you know, corporation understand where I'm coming from. You know, so that's where I'm at. about change and perception and reality, to just remember art itself is the transformative thing. It is the act of resistance, it is all these things that we're trying to do, and we talk a lot about our systems and organisations, but it's actually embedded in the art itself, so many of these important conversations that are intangible and can't be expressed um, in trivial conversations. Um, but um, some of the themes, Ian, that you've also raised today about uh, childhood and children and creating a better way, when um, this question was given to us by performing minds, God damn it, why? makes <laughs> 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 um, I kind of went existential because um, I was thinking about the culture of culture. Because <coughs> if we're going to talk about systems and change and etc., we have to recognise what the frame that we're dealing with is and what we don't often talk about well enough, and I'm not going to claim to be able to do it here today, is the culture of our systems and the culture of culture and the arts. And what we're trying to change isn't just our little corner of the world, it's, it's a, a way of being. And I think this is particularly important in culture and the arts because um, it's what's been making us human for all these years. And it's so deeply, I think, um, important to our Survival, really, as people and as communities. So this is a, um, a simple picture that was um, oh, given to me years ago in a philosophical uh, course that I did. But I go back to it a lot to think, to try and create a frame every time we have these conversations. And it's really just like here we all are today, front row, back row, whoever we are. Um, always exist like this. There was another time when we existed in this world where we sat alongside cows and other funny creatures and trees and the land and water and other people and we lived down here in this world. This is the world where all of our mythologies come from, our creation myths and for many of us our cultural connection to land, to each other, to spirit, to spirituality and more importantly our interconnectedness and we lived in this world which was by no means perfect but there were so many things about this that kind of bore us as people. And then through this project of 
modernizing ourselves, literally modernizing, we've pulled ourselves away from these and started to see ourselves just as individuals, some of us connected to here, some of us not. And it's important to also see that this pulling away for a lot of people, part of it was the evolution of Western society and the idea of rationalism and reason and kind of growing more and more into these individual people. But for a lot of people, this journey is traumatic. It was forced, it was associated with colonialism, separatism, and um, many things were lost in that, and that trauma still endures. And is sitting here in the people that we are now trying to involved in these conversations about how we're going to change the arts. And there is not much attention paid by the system we're in to how we connect back to this place, to connecting back to country, to connecting back to all of these other things that will support wellness in different ways in different parts of our community. So on top of that, we've then made, because they're rational, we'll draw them as squares. Sean Tan could do this much better. Go and read the rabbits. Basically, he says this all in the rabbits, doesn't he? But we've made a whole set of institutions that are supposed to take care of us as people and that we're supposed to trust, whatever it is. Democracy, hospitals, schools, and Australia Council. Whatever it is that you know, sits up here. And they are very square, and they're very based on this little understanding of how we are as people. And I guess that worked for a long time. But what was, what was not apparent is, as you can see, some people were higher than others in that system, and it is also corrupted by bias and power and all those other things. So it wasn't ever the true um, utopia that we hoped it was going to be. And now we're losing our faith in those systems. Now we realise that they don't necessarily support us well as people, and they don't necessarily connect back to here and help us be our, our full selves. So this is when we get, in my view, to this idea of a culture of culture, because we all sit in rooms together and we're all very different people. But what we've got to understand first of all is what values and meaning are driving us and the other people that are sitting in the room. How do we allow for those? How do we value them? And again, the arts place so much value on these things that is not recognised in other parts of our society. And how do we then make these faces more permeable to some of these ideas so that the whole system can work better together. And, um, you know, returning to down here, I'm not saying it's ideal. This is a time when probably women didn't have a great time and all sorts of other things were not perfect, but there are still elements of it that we need to really strongly think about before we go back up here and talk to our institutions again and try and redefine them in a different way. Otherwise, all we're doing is changing the boxes each time we have these conversations, and we're not actually changing the whole system. And that's why I think when I wake up every second day and my job completely frustrated, um, I, I go back to this, why am I feeling disempowered? Why am I feeling disconnected? Why am I feeling lonely in terms of the people <laughs> who I believe I share values with, but you know, we never seem to be able to see each other? And think about, how can I look at this in a different way that will teach me, A, to empower myself, but also to empower people around me to get to another place? Mm -hmm. Do you have any, do you have any part of the answer? No. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think the answer is, know this. First of all, know where you are. 
because if you don't know where you are, you don't know where, what you're trying to change and what to get to. Um, you know, draw on, everyone has different needs, but draw on community, draw on meaning and know very well what that is to you if it's not the same for everybody else. And then, I guess, use that to create either collective action or empower your own voice in how you are going to engage with these institutions. But really, I actually have no idea. <laughs> Hi everyone, um, I was lucky enough to be at the Gallup Elders um, Community Discourse Day as part of the Perth Festival and when I hear you talk about bringing your own um, processes to institutions I feel enormously hopeful and feel like in terms of your question China about an answer, I feel like artists bringing their innate processes to institutions is one way that we could go. Um, I do want to pick up on kind of a question of intersectional care and ecosystems, which I feel like is what you're talking about. So the thing that I started thinking about um, in thinking about self-care was, well, is self a myth? Um, I know that we need truth-telling, and I, I feel a responsibility now as an independent artist for 30 years who is also a public servant working in a government institution um, at the Art Gallery, that we also have responsibilities to share that load of truth-telling and to create platforms and opportunities for that truth-telling to happen. Um, Donna Haraway says that it matters what matters we use to think other matters with. It matters what stories we tell to tell other stories with. It matters what stories make worlds and what worlds make stories. She talks about staying with the trouble, and I feel like in a conversation like this that's talking about institutional transformation and self-care and well-being, we should be prepared to stay with the trouble because I don't think the answers are easy. We are all multitudes and made of, made of many, so in a conversation raising questions about self-care and self, as a queer Jewish artist and grandchild of Holocaust survivors, settler on colonised lands and now public servant, with enormous privilege, privilege um, in my work, privilege in my personal life, privilege to spend an afternoon having a conversation like this, and privilege because I am paid to be here. Um, I know that there are others who are also paid to be here thanks to this model that Performing Lines has been able to develop. But it's also an important question to ask who is not paid to be in a conversation like this. So what are issues of equity around who is paid and who is not paid to be in these kinds of conversations? Um, and I also recognise that I'm in a room of virtuosic practice uh, with artists who have a deep understanding of embodiment and uh, processes of transformation and improvisation. So, Again, in terms of an answer, there are studio practices that can be transformed to illustrate transformational change. We practice them in the studio all the time. Um, but as I say, the first thing I want to do is make visible that I am not a single self and that there are thinkers, artists, leaders, educators, children particularly, I've worked for 30 years with children, strangers, a partner, environments, histories and structures, seen and unseen, 
influencing everything I can and will say today. So I am not speaking just of my own voice. I am made up of all those readings, influences, relationships, institutional structures and fights. Um, and I am also speaking with the environment that I exist in. So we literally are sitting inside a theatre where we are breathing in environment and breathing it out. So we are also part of the environment that we experience, um, that we experience is in crisis right now. So a question about self-care is not distinct or separate from care with an environment in crisis. It makes sense that there is distress and rage and concern because we are not separate from the environment we live in. So to start with, I just want to cite the thinkers that I'm thinking with at the moment. There are many others. This is an incomplete and unfixed list. It's also not wide or intersectional enough. Uh, Donna Haraway, Staying with the Trouble. Maria Puig de la Bellacasa, Matters of Care. Aileen Morton Robinson, Talking Up to the White Woman. Adrienne Marie Brown, Emergent Strategy, Luz Lerman, High Human Horizontal, Maxine Green and her theories of social imagination and wide awakenness, Nina Simons, Philosophy of Of, By, For, All, Sarah Ahmed's Living a Feminist Life, The Rigorous Research of Joe Pollitt, Mindy Blaze and Jane Merriweather at ECU, and always Jeanette Winchester, Maggie Nelson and Carson Louise Bourgeois, <coughs> and more recently Sarah Ahmed and Estrida Neymanas. I'm happy to share that list if anyone would like it. Uh, Bruno Latour helped us shift thinking from matters of fact to matters of concern, and Maria Puig de la Bellacasa responded with theories of matters of care. I feel like in a conversation about care, it's helpful to think about care within ecosystems. So we are both relational, but also in relation and with environments, structures and ecosystems that we live with and against. Um, I feel like we need to move from a model of individ individualistic self-care and individualism and consider matters of care that allow us to experience the relational matrix and invite care into our practices, processes and institutions. So I'm an independent artist that finds myself inside an institution. Um, and I feel enormously privileged to be there, and I feel enormously hopeful um, because of the kinds of conversations that are happening inside institutions in Western Australia, nationally and internationally at the moment. I feel like this is the moment that, um, this is the moment. Um, I'm gonna read something from Maria, Maria which I've had to read um, about 15 times to wrap my head around. So I'm going to read it and then I'm just going to say what for me feels enormously significant about this thinking. Reading moments of dissenting within as instances of thinking with care stresses the difficulties of taking care of relations involved in knowledge creation. Yet caring for the effect of our thinking, thinking, even in worlds we would rather not endorse, can also make us vulnerable. Recognising vulnerability as an ethical stance could be an escapable price of commitment and involvement. If care moves relational webs, even by creating critical cuts, those involved in caring are bound to be moved too. So as an artist who wears my artist logics on my sleeve, 
and works inside my organisation with my artist logics very visible. I believe there is something in this idea of shifting our perception of dissenting within to thinking with intersectional care. So what if, instead of fighting against or dissenting within, we arrive with a model of care? Now my sense is the public discourse opportunity that you created in Gallup was an intersectional model of care. So you weren't critiquing a, 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 an institution, you were offering a deeply nuanced, respectful model of care that made it possible for um, everybody to have a voice, um, to acknowledge truth-telling and histories and pay respects where they were due, and also to offer um, an opportunity to gather and collect and curate all those knowledges that exist within that room in order to do something with them, in order to continue to So I feel very strongly that those kinds of delivered on that day in Western Australia is a very important model. I'm just going to say two more really hopeful things that you may or may not know. So at the moment, there is an independent artist leading a conversation with the Art Gallery of Western Australia, Sydney Opera House, Queensland Performing Arts Centre, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney, CARCLU, Art Play in Melbourne. Have I missed anyone? No. So right now, Alex Desrock, as an independent artist, is leading a deeply rigorous conversation with major institutions in Australia. That, that is happening. It grew out of a um, very intuitive, um, deeply kind of personal response to COVID. But what has resulted is a conversation that has made very visible that um, there are individuals inside of institutions. So, and institutions are nothing without the people in them and that um, it is possible to, without demolishing institutions, create new structures that evidence a different way of working. And that is happening. <coughs> um, one other thing I'd like to say is that I had the privilege of working with Sydney Opera House over um, about eight years, and I worked with a um, creative learning specialist called Frank Newman, who was um, developing a model of creative practice that he wanted to bring into schools, that Sydney Opera House wanted to bring into schools. And at the time, he wanted to um, invite artists to lead conversations about how to create transformational change in schools. And he um, created an opportunity to ask really curly questions about how you employ artists. So he asked the five of us who had been engaged to work on this project, how much of the year we needed to be paid keep us on board so that we could work on the project and we didn't have to pick up other work. Um, he asked how much we'd needed to, we would need to be paid for meetings. We got paid for every meeting that we went to. And he fought the institution to create a model that was driven by what artists' needs are. That model is now five years in. Schools engage in the creative leadership and learning model for, for a three-year period. Um, and it is entirely artist-led and all those artists are paid for their work opportunities are created for children from schools to perform on the stages of Sydney Opera House. So I do think that there is precedent both in Western Australia nationally and internationally for change. My sense is that the key is shifting from a self-care model 
to a question of intersectional matters of care. So, to, to all of you, I have this desire to say, can you draw the idea? <laughs> like, can you draw what Alex is doing? Like, can we paint over the top of this with words or images what we are seeing as those changes? circles inside the squares at that moment, you know, and just kind of going and, and putting those people up into the squares as well as down there. I don't know. So that's where I was at 
Hitchens spoke about like, me being one of those unhappy people beneath the squares, but my direction is not down, so it's up into those squares and expressing expressing what I know about land and what I know about that bottom section <coughs> up into those squares. Shifting and stirring, which is the conversation that Alex was leading. 
um, has been has made very visible. I mean, and also COVID helped because we were meeting in the virtual space. So you could end up in the breakout room with the director of children and families at the um, at Sydney Opera House and an emerging artist who had just graduated. And that hierarchy just wasn't there. You didn't even know people were not their labels, so you didn't know who was in the room with you. So it made it very easy to disrupt all those models because people were accessible. Um, um, I just, I, I do have to add a comment to that, and this is where we get to the perception and reality part of the question here, is that um, in the consultation we've just done with a group of independent artists, they were seeing, they were saying that they saw our arts institutions as less welcoming and permeable. And I am definitely arguing that those hard borders need to be broken down so people can come in and out more easily. But they were using things, they said a few things like we used to feel tethered to particular institutions and that we would we would have our arts practice, but we were always tethered back to this place in a sense of community and that they feel that's been lost. And so I think that's something that we all have to think about, though, is, is the culture of our institutions isn't just walking in the front door um, and gathering spots. That's the other thing that people were saying, we don't have places to gather, to just have water-cooled conversations and less formal environments for the sharing of ideas. And the other thing I thought about in that research is the beautifully named mycelium network from the, um, the forest down south that artists are fertilizers, they, they go between institutions. So while most of us are stuck at a desk in a particular place every day, they move and they fertilize us with ideas from everywhere else and they often are connecting, making connections that we're not making ourselves with other institutions. And so to give them the power to do that, to kind of travel between, especially because there's such a prevalence now of hybrid careers. So it's not only across institutions, but it's across art forms. And I think that's where the, the beautiful answer is, as you say, in terms of an ecology and a network. The organisational psychologist in me is singing at the moment, because there's been so much work and beautiful research that shows that the most effective organisations are based on ecological models. And those models are exactly as you talk about. There are parts that are fixed, there are parts that can change, and we look directly to ecology and to down here is actually the structure that we live in because we have evolved in it. And so our organisations need to be that as well. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really, I think that's a really great connection to make because there's a lot of information around that. Yeah. I have something else just to add, Lily, I really enjoyed your talk. The, the question about intersectionality is making me also think about urgency and people like Simone Vale that it is urgent yes. that our our well-being depends on the well-being of another person and we need to understand that as urgent rather than a problem that we can keep pushing out to solve and it's really sad that those people are sad but um, and that I think is about the impulse for, for action and change as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. There is a roaming what are your questions or just your reflections or any comments that you want to make? It doesn't have to be a question to the panel. Maybe that you have something that you need to say.
intersectional matters of care. If intersectional matters of care are a way forward, who or how do we care for the individuals who hold that space to allow intersectional matters of care to exist? Or in another way, how do we escape the almost practical certainty that certain individuals carry more weight than others? In psychology frame, so I'll just be clear that's the frame I'm speaking from, it, it's not possible. About 20% of people carry the weight for about 80% of us. And, and it's always that, and there's nothing wrong with stepping into that 20, and then for whatever reason, stepping out of it, someone else steps in, this is what they're saying about it, it's not like the power has to sit with those particular people for always but that there will invariably be a, a 20 to 80 ratio of people who at that moment are stepping in <coughs> and they are carrying it. Does anyone want to speak from a different perspective though? Because that's that I was super clear then I was like, that's the organisational research. Can you, it's such an important question, could you just say it again? Uh, the long version do, Yeah, do the long version. If intersectional matters of care are a way forward, who or how do we care for the individuals who hold that space to allow intersectional matters of care? Or how do we escape the almost <laughs> practical certainty that certain individuals carry more weight than others? So really good questions are something in and of themselves. <coughs> That's a really good question. Um, if we think with ecosystems and matters of intersectional care, ideally we're working with um, kind of relational just models of distribution where um, loads are shared. So that doesn't mean that loads are equal. It just means that we stay with questions that invite us to consider every single moment of every single day how we are with matters of care. Um, and I think the work is arduous and ongoing, so don't think there is an answer. I think the invitation is what happens if we work um, and live with matters of intersectional care, understanding that we are part of an ecosystem. So um, beyond human thinking is asking us the question, our separateness as human beings. So then all the conversations around um, self-care become questioned because we exist within something much larger than sectors or culture or like we are part of a matrix where things are visible and not visible, they are linear and not linear. We can know things and there are many, 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 many things that we cannot know 
what happens if our institutions functioned in that way? What happens if our institutions understood that the legacy is not of an exhibition necessarily, not that there isn't an exhibition or of a show, but legacy is something that we are responsible for in every moment of every day. So what do our board meetings look like? What do our strategic plans look like? Where do we have lunch? Which emails do we ignore and which do we respond to? How accessible are we? Are our phone numbers on our website so that if people want to infiltrate our institutions, can they find us or not? Like they're the kinds of questions that we need to be answering. And I think there are lots and lots and lots of those things that are um, operational. So that's a really good question for all institutions to ask. How accessible are the people that work inside the institution? Shouldn't artists want to talk to someone? Can they find their number? Can they find their email address? So, and then we start to look at how to care for everyone. Because then, if we have a conversation and I understand um, somebody else's perspective who is not feeling cared for, or is not feeling supported within the sector or within the institution, it's much more likely that um, something will shift than if you are filling out a form to apply for a job or you know, going through a formal process. So it gets tricky, it kind of comes back to what you were talking about where you brought in a question about um, called spirituality but opened that to a much wider context. So what is the place of talking about love and care? So I, I think that is an important conversation to be having in 2021. I don't think we can truth tell and create space for our history of genocide without talking about love inside of our institutional structures. I don't have any answers on how to do that, except that you turn up every day and ask questions about how to do it and, and stay, stay in the trouble, stay with the trouble, stay with not knowing. Push against each other and go, I'm not sure about that, but maybe something else. So in terms of structures, I think that's where the real perceived question came. Because for these, for many of these structures, love isn't real. It's not a real thing that we have to really manage. But it is a real thing, because we're humans. <laughs> so I, I, like that, that is this interesting question of then if these organizations get formed or if they have been formed over time, they've been formed around things that they think are real and they've then decided that for everybody else. But actually, I like what you're all saying about the artist coming into it, being able to change it as the artist, because then you can decide what's real and have that argument with the organisation. They go, it's not real, say, well, yes, it is, and it's the most important real thing there is here. Hi, I had less of a question and more of a reflection on the concepts of holding space and um, sort of the answers to the nebulous almost unanswerable. I had a very similar thought in terms of how um, there's a question of equality versus equity. So equality, every, everyone gets the same thing. Sometimes that works wonderfully, but we know quite inherently perhaps that's not always the case. So you might be a small ant. But ants are fucking, pardon my language, but ants are fucking strong. They can carry an immense weight compared to other animals. So it's a matter of understanding and sitting in the spaces of 
knowing, acknowledging our past, present, and history, is it not? But going to something that Shona was saying about um, the reason why we have boxes, the reason why we have um, organizations is because they eliminate the need for responsibility and liability from us as individuals. The doctor was not responsible, the hospital was responsible. That leader who did the wrong thing, it's not their fault, it's the responsibility of the organization. And that's something that, as a, as a what's it called? As a common school dropout, I have to connect to. Um, but no, I, I also wanted to connect to this idea of, I can't remember who said it, um, connecting to being um, a hybrid career or different parts of um, arts practice or even beyond arts um, as someone who's making that leap. And um, it's very interesting to be present in this space. I think um, my frustration with the question that I always have is why it is this person or this place inaccessible or not considered. And I'll have conversations with artists who are feeling the pinch or feeling ignored. And then I see the way the conversations or the ways the space or the ways the questions are proposed. And it's like trying to speak a foreign language to another person. So I think it's, I guess in summary, it's a matter of knowing do I need care? Do I need people to care for me? And can I share that request? But also knowing, can I give care? Is now is it now my time, my place, my strength to be able to offer care to those around me? Um, which I'm very grateful that a lot of wonderful artists at all levels have been able to do for me. Um, this is not always the case in other industries, and I say that from experience. Yeah, thank you so much. Wellness as a privilege and ecological balance or wellness as a group is created or to be solved via relationships and collective models of care. Where does the panel see nepotism sitting in the problem and solution of this issue or the delivery of these models or the dominant narrative, you know, the dominant narrative of dictating the way we relate in, in, these, in delivering these models? Are you more thinking about the people like us probably that within institutions? Maybe, yeah. Maybe nepotism is the wrong word, but um, do you see any, any um, potential issues in, in um, being so solely reliant on relationships as the, as the solution? Um, in, I don't know, yeah. Maybe nepotism well, is the wrong word. Power. We're, we're human yeah, beings we love and we also love power. You may want to say something about this, but there will always be a group of people or who seek to influence and have that power. And that's what we've done since we emerged from our cave. So I think 
just recognizing that it's there is, is important and addressing it when you can, but also possibly insulating insulations from an, an over use of it. But I think this is some of the big questions that have come out of big conversations recently is, is have we not addressed those for too long within some institutions that power has become shifted too much to a group or whatever. Um, but I don't think it's avoidable. Show me. Probably no more. Um, and I think we probably see it in how a lot of the global politics is playing out about the type of person that maybe wants power but is very ill-suited to power because of the way that they um, lack a degree of empathy or a sense of a system or an ecosystem. And I, I guess um, as the person that's been invited to chair this panel, I, am I would still like you to stay focused on the pointy end and maybe as we talk about types of people or types of structures because I reckon whether you are interested in psychometrics or not, I reckon if I profile everybody in this space, you are the type of person who actually doesn't want to function in a structure. You're all going to be the types of people who love your own ideas, your independence, lots of freedom, moving around. Now, that's the problem. Because if you don't decide then on the structures and the institutions that you want there to support you, other people will do it for you. So, you, so it might not be that you want, even some of you in this room might even want structures. And you might want to see everything as 100% permeable. But that's not resilience and that's not how nature is either. And so it becomes a really, really important question about structures if you are going to have a voice, especially if you don't want to run them and you don't want to be the one answering 100 emails a day because you're doing the admin and the bureaucracy. Because there are other people, if I profile them, they love that stuff. Yeah. You know? So it's actually a really important question for you guys to answer. And I do take a lot of... Um, joy from you know you raising the project that Alex is doing and that seems like this beautiful intersection to use that word between what these institutions are there and therefore with people who are highly skilled to do what institutions need to do to minimize corruption and talking about the good things that institutions can offer us and allowing artists to move or the way that institutions might let family in Community. So it's, it is really important that you you name these things that you need. Also on that, it's important, it's important also to realise a thought that I had, Grace, was <coughs> it's much harder to make choices as a collective against the individual. And it goes back to what Brother was saying. Is me, in my experience, working by myself, I can make decisions and choices that I that I want to make quite easily. But as a collective, when a part of a collective and, and, and industry and you know corporation, it's much more hard and it takes a lot of time for a group to make a choice than it would the individual. So there therein lies the a thought about time and, and process within some of those corporations on the length of time and, and how long it would take to create kind of change by making those choices as a collective, you know? Yeah. 
possibly important to remember the difference between making art and making culture in this conversation as well, because culture is reciprocal, it also comes with obligations, it's, it, it's you know, um, got a lot of weight around it, whereas um, artistic practice can often be about being liberated or free from those things and kind of expressing mm -hmm. yourself. So it's balancing all that as well, because getting back to this whole thing, if you want to be an artist within a particular culture, you have to know the rules of that cultural game to be successful. Sorry, I just wanted to add a comment um, about what you were saying, Lily, about going back to art practice. And I think um, it is how an art process works within a room. And we all know this, that collaborations can be really hard and sometimes they don't work. Um, but I found in rehearsal rooms and, and creative practice, the devising process is so exciting. But also in the end, sometimes you just need somebody to provide some direction. And that doesn't mean that it has to be, you know, really um, awful, uh, kind of didactic, and not embracing other people's voices, but I think it's, it's interesting to think about how we do work as artists. It's not, you know, unless you're working by yourself, if you are working with a group, there is a natural way to, to, to find a path. Um, I had a question about apathy and um, rage, which you were talking about at the beginning, Shona, and, um, I guess with institutions, um, all those boxes, the systems, um, and talking about self-care, I guess I personally come up against moments where I'm like, this is, I've just spent all the energy I've had trying to reach the people in those boxes or reach the system. And, you know, my psychologist would tell me, you you know, it's now time to let go. And I guess for me, I'm wondering, you know, to, to stop chasing that company, stop trying to get apply for grants you're not going to get. Where is the line with, um, between apathy and change, I guess? Okay. Um, well... One of the ways that I might talk about that in, in relation to what we've been talking about here is that um, there are things that are deeply meaningful to all of you in this room, and each of you has different things that are meaningful. And what, what I mean by meaningful is that when someone interrogates you about them, you get to a point where you go, just because. Just because. That is just how I like it, or that is just what I need to do with my life, just because. And that's how you know you've hit something that's really fundamentally important. If your art practice and your desire to express something in the world, and, and really what we're talking about is a way of being. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking necessarily about what you do, but what, how you be in the world. It is so important that that is the action that you take. If you don't take that action, your life will be less full. If you take it, your life will be full. It will still have the sadness, the frustration, the apathy, the white anger. 
but it will be a full life. And so I think that the question for artists when their practices are deeply meaningful to them, it's really hard to go, well, now I leave. And now I stop. Because it's, it, it hits that place that's just so important about how we are present as this life in this time on this planet. So I don't think it's a simple question. And I think you should use your 20 Medicare appointments to investigate it as much as you can.
know we're both that emotionally and mental health-wise, whatever, before we even start working together. Um, yet our board found that really weird. And we said, let's do that at board meetings. So I think, but, but they've gone with it. And I think you can do that. You can bring as artists, particularly in the room, to begin with, which I acknowledge can be hard to get in there, but you can bring those things there. And people respond to them, and we learned that in COVID as well, because we're all human working from around dreams and seeing the Boston pajamas or, you know, all of those sort of memes and tropes of, of kids in the background or whatever, you know, naked spouses, whatever. So, but I mean, all of that kind of helps. We, I, I think you know, here we are in the second, uh, yeah, second decade of, the, of, the, of this century, kind of actually letting go of a lot of things that are just done because that's the way we always did them. And so we have people like yourselves in positions I guess maybe now I'm realising I'm just sort of reflecting on the hope that different people have offered here. And I think um, uh, those things are about, are I agree, about ecosystems, which is something that came up, you know, pre-COVID when we first started really acknowledging the demise of funding in the arts across the board and all across the country. I'm saying we have to think about ecosystems, we have to help each other. And then in COVID, we did it, which is, you know, um, reflected in the arts kind of sharing, there was so much information coming through and we were doing that. I think we just keep doing that. And then, you know, the old guard is dying off. Let's go for it. I, actually, the old guard is dying off and I'll speak to you as someone who's closest in my, to my age and everyone else in this room. But did you know that millennials, so anyone in this room was born after early 1980s through to early 2000s, you are the most narcissistic group of individuals. <laughs> What's a good way to introduce self-care then? <laughs> For the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for that, and thank you too for all the other questions. I just wanted to make one distinction between relationships and a matrix of relational care in thinking with ecosystems. So relationships are important and they're <coughs> operational, so you can develop a relationship. The risk is call it nepotism or call it something else, that organisations tend towards people they know and have good relationships with. That's natural, it's organic, we move towards where there is energy. I think we need to check it and I think we need to be very conscious of the decisions we are, are making around who we are working with and why. Um, but developing strong relationships and caring for each other is different than um, a, a heightened attentive sensorial experience of the matrix of ecosystems and relationships that we live within. And I think that there is a complexity and no answers around what that does. I know how it plays out. I know how it plays out when Alex and I are managing difficulty because we're trying to have relationships through imporous edges of institutions and we're trying to figure it out. So we're kind of, we, we have to heighten all our senses of attention and patience and sit with enormous difficulty in order to figure out how to pay an independent artist when our institutions don't recognise that independent artist is having a critical role and there are no infrastructures. Even if the institution or the people or the directors of the institution go, that sounds amazing, we should be supporting the independent artist, there are no structures. There's no, there's no way we can accommodate a payment because it's an unforeseen structure. 
So it's enormously difficult. But I think if we bring our studio practice into these conversations and don't just leave that practice in the studio to develop work and recognise that artists have a, a, a phenomenal ability to improvise, to respond um, in an embodied way, they have a heightened sense of listening. Um, generally, there's a um, you know it's a, it's an emotional world, but there's also high levels of emotional intelligence. Those things are required not just in the art sector. So that skill set at, at this time is required everywhere. And every system that is looking to transform itself requires those skills. So philosophically and theoretically, let's read the thinkers and sit with the complex ideas. Operationally, if we're thinking about the arts sector and transformational change, we cannot transform the arts sector without transforming the education system and the government and you know, the fact that our kids go to school from 9 to 3 and we're supposed to be at work from 8.30 to 5. I mean, the, the, it doesn't make any sense. The structures don't work. We've got to transform all of them to try to transform any of them. Um, and we can be together with the difficulty differently if we bring our practice into those conversations. I think, I mean, we're, te I don't, we're testing it. We're trying it out. It seems to be doing some good things at the moment. I just want to talk around a, an idea and open it up a bit about a couple of things that just came up about stepping away. Now, uh, interestingly, since I decided to step away because of my frustration with these structures, I found that I, I now have many more <laughs> possible creative ideas. Um, so just starting again, I suppose, the Renaissance. Um, I started thinking about um, self-produced work again, and it's interesting talking through this whole situation because we are, you know, I think I think it's such a, a crossroad where if we don't have the funding and we have a great idea, and for whatever reason the funding hasn't come through, whether it's because it's not seen as valuable, whether there were more um, applications in that round, you know, all those sort of different responses you get, that kind of soft censorship, I suppose I call it. Um, how then do we, you know, produce these wonderful productions if we can't kind of find our way or swim our way through those kind of censorships or those barriers? And are we, <laughs> as a as a community, still able, and I'm nervous to say this because I know there's been a lot of backlash about it, but are we still able to self-produce, to work together, for example, um, to get to a pilot stage for something so that then we can show it and then reapply for funding? You know, it, it's really difficult as an independent artist when you don't have that structure behind you, when you don't have that sort of flagship company um, that's producing more corporate work, I suppose, corporate arts and, dare I say, uneducation, uneducating the audiences to really contemporary work. Um, yeah, it's just, I hope you hear my frustration. I'm sort of in a situation where I want to make work again, and I believe I can, <laughs> um, but I'm just not sure how to start through that process, beyond, obviously,
very kindly, they said to me, oh, Christy, of course I'll come and do it for nothing. But I somehow can't allow that to happen either because I don't want to take advantage of people, but I really want to make my work. <laughs> so, look, it's just a strategy just to open up that conversation with everybody having a response to that. Thank you. about that, about having the institutional support when making work can alleviate, can provide some of that care actually. And so actually what I think is a crucial thing that's missing in the WA landscape is producers, independent producers, to be able to provide that care for independent artists. Um, so just hearing you talk then, I think not necessarily an institution, I think it's care that needs the support and guidance to find the audience and the place and the opportunities. Do you think that's a little bit bound up in uh, funding as well? Oh so yes. Yes, and so what I'm saying is that there's a little bit of an issue, I think, with funding for producers as much as there is for artists and yeah. the retaining of producers because we've seen many independent producers go straight into institutions and the security, and then they move over east. You know, we've seen that again and again. So how do we, I really believe, if we can fund some producing places or some retainers for producers, that that would be an experiment to see what could be leveraged from that. surveys that have been uh, conducted recently, there is a mentality around artists being the number one most useless um, profession in, in Australia, which is really sad. And so the, what can we do to change that for people to actually see that being able to tap into our innate creativity, and that's what we show here, um, that's what keeps us sane, that's what kind of keeps us connected as humans. Um, yeah, what, what are the steps that we can take together and how we can support each other, where we can take the discussion for, I guess, society and government to really start acknowledging us for the work that we could actually do and put out into the world and what we contribute to the culture and society.
example. This is me as just one individual. I'm doing the inane and the mundane. I'm explaining to Uber drivers what I do for a living. And it's important because if I lie, or if I make up some nonsense, or I say something like, guess, I see it as a wasted opportunity. If I can demonstrate value to an individual that is just my little very grassroots way of changing this perception, and I maybe we'll have a conversation with you later, but if we think about even the world that we live in now, and the jobs that everyone is training to do, data science, what the fuck is that? UX design for people who are place activators, people who are provocateurs, guess what? These are all artists. They've just got a new title, they're using the same core skills that we all have, and we can't forget that. And these things came from theater makers and storytellers and producers, so we can't forget that. If, and I'm going to be having very heated conversations later, but we can't forget these things. That's all I want to say for now. a beautiful point to finish on actually because in a way that's where the whole um, initial provocation for this session sat which was this concept of busyness and how much of that is real and how much of that is perceived and I think that artists and unfortunately in this country scientists as well there's a real erosion there in our scientific practices is that the work that we do isn't seen as real so um, if any of you has the pleasure of working with an artist whose partner is not an artist and doesn't really get it, there are those beautiful moments when you come home from the studio and they give you a nice big jab in the ribs and go, oh, did you have a great day at work today drinking coffees and talking? You know, and so this sense that the work that you do is somehow not real and that you should get on and do something that is real. And so, and that, that goes to me to then that these institutions, part of their job is to define what's real and it's to define what's important. And so we have to be part of the conversation across all of the parts of it. Because um, if you don't start talking about the realness and the real importance of your work, then it's simply not going to be included. Other things are going to be seen as real. Yeah. Well, look, that was just a fantastic use of a whole lot of brains for about 90 minutes. Now, what, what happens with the brain is it's going to keep throwing ideas at you um, for a good, you know, 24 hours in a week, and I know there's more saturation even to come in the lab. So please stay in contact with the conversation. I'm, I'm sure that performing lines will somehow grab this information as they do. They're always really fantastic about that. So thank you all for coming along, and thank you to Sheila, Ian, and Lily for your amazing selves. That was just brilliant. Thank you. Mm -hmm.